0: Welcome to Episode 92 of the PharmExec Podcast. I'm Elaine Quilici, Senior Editor of PharmExec Magazine, here along with my co-host, Assistant Editor Miranda Schmelfis. PharmExec Magazine is a multimedia publishing grant that brings you the latest commercial insights for the C-suite. On this week's episode, Miranda and I have the pleasure of speaking with Tom McCourt, CEO of Ironwood Pharmaceuticals. Tom talks about his 30-plus years in the gastrointestinal space, Including his experiences bringing top GI medicines Prilosep, Nexium, Entacort, Zelnorm, and Lenzest to market. Let's take a quick break from our sponsor and we'll be right back with Tom.
1: What if you had limitless access to customer insights, accelerated timelines, and set fees? At Truth Network, we're fueled by connections in virtually every area of healthcare as part of MJH Life Sciences. The result, audience-fed creative and more powerful content in less time. True Serum Network, releasing what's real. Find out more at truthserumntwk.com.
0: Hello, podcasters. Today, Miranda and I will be interviewing Tom McCourt, CEO of Ironwood Pharmaceuticals. Tom is here to discuss his extensive background in gastrointestinal drug development, the current landscape of therapies, and what the future may hold for this space. Thanks for joining us today, Tom.
2: Thanks, Elaine and Miranda. It's great to be here, and I really appreciate the opportunity to share some thoughts with the group.
0: So how did you get into the field of GI drugs?
2: Well, I guess it starts with my family roots. You know, I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin where my dad was the local pharmacist and he loved being a pharmacist. So I got exposed to the pharma industry at a relatively young age. And from that experience, you know, I learned a lot from my dad and the importance of serving your patient, listening to your customer, and of course, learning the fact that the customer is always right and you're not the customer which, you know, I've carried through my entire career. And in addition, my mom was the mother of six kids at one time, six under the age of 10, and suffered from some fairly severe Crohn's disease over the years. So I was able to see kind of firsthand how a disease like that can not just impact the individual, but the family. And what a burden that was and a challenge for our family. When you were in a small town with limited, you know, medical options and just plain had to suffer through it. And that was very inspiring to me. And I had a real interest in science at an early age. And I applied to one school in college, and that was the University of Wisconsin. And, and I did that because it was the only pharmacy school in the state. But also, I had a, had a lifetime dream of, of playing football for the Badgers. And I was actually a walk-on. and made the team. Unfortunately, after a couple of seasons, I, I had a fairly severe head injury from a concussion and developed a seizure disorder, which just intensified my interest in pharmacology as I continued to pursue my interest in, in pharmacy and in pharmacology. And my intention was really to kind of to follow my father's footsteps you know, as a retail pharmacist. But you know, as I approached graduation, I just became enamored in the drug development process and in the pharmaceutical industry. And fortunately... You know, I landed a job. My first job was with Merck Pharmaceuticals. And actually, the first project I worked on was Prilosec with the original NDA submission, which really immersed me into the GI space. And it's been an amazing adventure ever since then.
0: What are some of the greatest challenges of commercializing GI drugs?
2: To me, you know, GI diseases are certainly fascinating, but rather unique. I mean, think about it. I mean, basically, you have a tube that runs from one end of your body to the other, and you know it's there for a specific purpose. And when it doesn't work, it's not pleasant. And so you're looking at these GI diseases, many of which are very prevalent, they're almost all highly symptomatic, and they also tend to overlap, which makes it quite challenging. Some of these diseases have a clear underlying pathologies like inflammatory bowel disease, or things like biliary or liver disease, but many of them, you know, have no real organic problem that you can put your finger on. And, and these tend to be caused by visceral hypersensitivity. So diseases such as GERD and irritable bowel syndrome, dyspepsia, and unexplained abdominal pain are very prevalent and they tend to overlap. But as a result, you know, they're not often taken seriously. And, and often, you know, physicians are not looking for these problems. This is, these are problems that the patient brings up during the exchange. And it tends to be more important to the patient and the doc. So this communication between the doc and the physician is really critical. And it's often where the problem and the breakdown and the real challenge occurs. And establishing an effective treatment is largely dependent on, obviously, the the physician understanding the unmet medical need. And for instance, a real-life example is a simple term, constipation. And it's used very broadly. And the the patient will often use that as a kind of a a tagline, you know, that describes an array of symptoms, everything from straining to bloating and discomfort. And it's generally the bloating and discomfort that drives the patient to see a physician because it is the primary complaint. But when they use the word constipation, of course, the physician immediately goes to, you know, a bowel frequency problem. And will often treat with a simple laxative, which may make the patient feel worse, not better. And as a result, the patient becomes very frustrated with the healthcare practitioner. And so this becomes kind of a vicious circle. So it's really critical, you know, if you're going to be commercializing a healthcare solution that you need to be able to modify this dialogue and improve the dialogue between patients and physicians, which was a huge breakthrough in what is now called GERD. And certainly, you know, what is now called IBS or irritable bowel syndrome.
0: I know Entecort almost wasn't brought to market because AstraZeneca was worried there wasn't a place for it. Could you explain how understanding patient need came into play?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I think this is a classic example of the importance of leaders listening to the patients and to the customers and staying true to the commitment, you know, that we indeed are patient-centric and we, we want to be a patient-centric organization. Anticorder, if the generic name was budesonide, was actually a short-acting steroid that was developed to treat inflammation but minimize some of the long-term problems that long-acting steroids create. And budesonide had been used for years as an inhaler for people with asthma, and it was quite a successful drug and, and was being developed for the treatment of acute inflammatory bowel disease. But many in the organization felt it was a relatively low priority and a distraction to promoting and marketing Prilosec. Thus, Astra was contemplating killing the program. In fact, it was killed at one point. But it was interesting, there was a group of very outspoken GI experts that really pleaded with the organization and strongly encouraged the organization to bring it to market that there would be a place for it. Of course, keep in mind, this is right at the time where biologics started showing up for inflammatory bowel disease and there was a lot of interest in biologics and, and they were very effective. Fortunately, uh, we had some strong leadership in the organization that, that allowed us to bring Entocor to market and of course it flourished. There was a place for it, it helped hundreds of thousands of patients and turned out to be quite a commercial success for Astra, well now AstraZeneca. But I think it goes back to this concept of understanding the needs of the patient, and listening to your customer.
0: So you have a proven track record in commercializing GI drugs. What exactly does it take to craft a successful campaign?
2: I think it really starts, you know, I'm a a big champion of understanding patient and physician insights. And I know that term gets thrown around a lot, but for me, what an insight is, is to understand the need of the patient. What is it they need to understand and believe and feel? to really take action, you know, whether that's a patient or whether that's a physician. And it's hard. I mean, it's not obvious. It's often confusing and certainly ambiguous. But, you know, landing on the right insight or a couple of insights really can unleash the potential of a drug. And certainly I learned that in a big, big way on Prilosec, but I've learned that through, you know, my entire career. And of course, once you're clear on the insight and what is it that patients and physicians need to understand, believe, and feel, now the question is, how can I take that and craft a clinical program that can deliver on that and provide the evidence for you to be able to actually own that insight? That could be a symptom, that could be a mechanism, it could be a reason to believe, but to be able to be in a position where it speaks right to that insight and it's ownable and differentiated from other treatment options puts you in a very strong place, and of course, the last piece of this, as far as the campaign's concerned, is really the creative, and when I mean creative, I'm talking about the creative concept for the ad, and I'm a big believer that the creative should always stand on its own. In other words, you can turn off the sound, watch the ad, and it can illustrate the problem in a very effective way but also inspire patients to take action. And if you get there and then put the soundtrack on top of it or the voice track on top of it, it becomes a very, very powerful tool to help physicians identify patients, but more importantly, enable patients to effectively describe their symptoms and seek help. And when you go and I would I would encourage you to go back and look at the Prilosec ads and the current Lincense ads. And, you know, we really strive to do that. And to identify these concepts that that stimulate different segments of patients over time, but also how do we continue to deepen this communication that we can really trigger this emotional charge that causes a patient to raise their hand and say, I'm not satisfied with where I am. I want better.
0: What are your thoughts on microbiome targeting products for GI patients?
2: I think microbiome is a fascinating area. It's obviously something that we're watching very closely. I think it illustrates that the gut controls the whole body. Some may think that. uh, Often people call it the second brain. And it's one of these things that, you know, we have a lot to understand. I think it's it's an exciting opportunity and it's something we're going to watch closely. I think we're making good advancements in the science, but we haven't really come up with the solutions yet, but I think it's a And it also underscores this whole interaction with the gut and the rest of the body. And you know, we're actually looking at uh, leveraging a hypothesis or a, a scientific idea called crosstalk, where organs talk to each other through common intervention innovation into the spinal cord. So for instance, what we do know is the colon, the nerves that intervent the colon, hit the spinal cord at the same region as the bladder and pelvic nerves do. And then, of course, that gets signaled to the brain. And what we've been able to show in animal models is by stimulating effects in the colon, it can have a direct effect on other visceral pain problems such as endometriosis, interstitial cystitis, which are really problematic diseases and and often are comorbid with many of the GI diseases, particularly irritable bowel syndrome, which is also a disorder of visceral hypersensitivity. So this is a a real exciting area for us right now, but I think it also speaks to how fascinating and how interesting the GI diseases and GI pathways can serve certainly patients in the medical community.
0: As constipation often affects opioid users, has the need for constipation drugs increased along with the epidemic in the US?
2: Yeah, there's, there's no question. Opioids, we know, cause pretty severe constipation. And it's an area that we've looked at for a long time, both patients that had pre-existing constipation, which, where opioids exacerbate the problem or actually triggers a whole new problem. And of course, you know, previously we didn't have many effective treatments to address that. And you know, we're keen in this space. Uh, we actually conducted a national GI healthcare survey that covered all GI symptoms and diseases. And we basically surveyed about over 100,000 patients. And this was an area where these people that are taking opioids and have comorbid condition really, really struggle. And their symptoms actually are worse than other patients that have similar constipation disorders. And the good news is it's treatable and it's avoidable. And certainly we think Linzess will play a role in the future here, but I think the science will continue to emerge. But It's certainly a a significant healthcare problem in the U.S.
0: So what do you see as possible market disruptors in the GI space?
2: I think it starts with what is a disruptor, right? For me, a disruptor can be a diagnostic, it it can be an innovative treatment, it can be a healthcare solution, be a technology, or it can even be an emerging healthcare crisis, just like we've been experienced with the COVID pandemic, you know, that then leads to rapid change in behavior. And I've been involved with a couple of those that have been notable. The first that I was involved in was several years ago, when there was a development, we developed the first electronic endoscopic report. And and this was a collaboration with the endoscopic companies, the pharma companies, and the GI communities to basically figure out a way we can capture all the information about a patient. And the physician could also submit a claim in one move. So it made it easy uh, to document the patient-specific information, but also streamline their ability to get reimbursed. And it was rapidly adopted. And we collaborated with the GI Society to actually create a national database. And you can imagine hundreds of, actually millions of endoscopies, these reports coming in. And we structured them such a way that you could query that It would create a large database that could be mapped. And of course, this is long before things like AI were even being talked about. And what what fell out of that was somewhat remarkable. And it enabled us to really understand what is GERD and how do we define GERD. And so you had all these patients coming in with heartburn. They were doing endoscopies to figure out, is there a pathology in the esophagus? And you had this enormous database. And what we found out is patients that simply had heartburn two or more days a week had a very high probability of having erosive esophagitis. And so we went to the FDA with that. And that became the definition for GERD that you still hear on ads today. You know, if you have heartburn two or more days a week, you could have a real medical condition called GERD. And that's where it came from. But it started with this disruptive technology that came about. And I think we're seeing a very similar emerging technology with telemedicine. And part of it was certainly things like what we're talking about today on Zoom, et cetera, is the technology, but also the catalyst of the pandemic. You know, when physicians could not interact with patients on a regular basis, and in particularly GI diseases where most of their activity is around endoscopies and they couldn't do endoscopies anymore. How do I manage the patients? And the GI community in general embraced it in a big, big way. And of course, again, when you think about many of the GI diseases, including irritable bowel syndrome, they tend to be very prevalent, highly symptomatic, often not life-threatening, could be diagnosed over video, and easily managed. And we've seen uh, at one point, you know, as you know, Linzess has been quite successful, 50% of our new patients treated with through telemedicine. And so, you know, we have taken a very active role in working with the medical community as well as the technology community to say, you know, how do we develop this optimal platform for all GI diseases? Because there's many highly symptomatic diseases that could be more effectively managing the patients remotely. And it's certainly patients are also very uncomfortable talking about their symptoms. I mean, there's a lot of issues that a technology like this could tackle and solve. And so I think this is one of these emerging technologies that I think is going to be here to stay. And certainly, you know, our intention is to be out on the edge of that.
0: Well, Tom, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been really interesting hearing about your experiences in GI and the opportunities in this space to serve more patients.
2: Thank you. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to share my thoughts.
1: What if you had limitless access to customer insights, accelerated timelines, and set fees? At True Serum Network, we're fueled by connections in virtually every area of healthcare as part of MJH Life Sciences. The result? Audience fed creative and more powerful content in less time. True Serum Network, releasing what's real. Find out more at NTWK.com.
0: And now it's time for this week's leadership tips from pharma execs.
2: Hi, I'm Tom McCourt, CEO of Ironwood Pharmaceuticals, and my leadership tip is one of listening and understanding. You know, we are in a period of tremendous change, and as leaders, we need to be able to adapt to that change. And there's a couple of very simple principles I I try to follow every day that I think enables strong leadership. One, be humble. You know, ask for help when you need help. Second, assess and avoid judgment. Seek to understand and try to surface a problem proactively and eliminate your own barriers and bias and really focus on solutions and understanding. I think the third here is expect curiosity from everybody. And you need to model that. So ask questions, open lines of communications in an authentic way. And certainly, it's also important to really expect initiative. In other words, we need to be clear, we need to be direct, but, you know, you really also need to inspect what you expect to stimulate that initiative across the group. And lastly, just don't take yourself too seriously. I think there is an importance of being humble and and vulnerable to your team, and I think it allows them to be more open, and I think, you know, focuses on the problem, not the politics or the issues.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's FarmExec podcast. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders and give you an inside look at what the FarmExec staff is working on. Remember, you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at FarmExec, on Instagram at FarmExecutives and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of FarmExec, its parent company or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email editorial director Lisa Henderson at lhenderson at mjhlifesciences.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at tbaker at mjhlifesciences.com.